You're listening to the River City Church Podcast. Our desire is that you know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, and discover purpose. For more information, check us out on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co. Here's the message. Uh, today, is we, we're going to conclude our series on relationship goals. Relationship goals. How many of you have enjoyed this series so far? Three of you. Okay, that's all right. That's all right. You didn't have to enjoy it. Uh, in fact, I, I don't know that after what we talk about today, you're going to enjoy it anymore, but uh, hopefully it encourages you and hopefully maybe challenges you in your relationships to grow for them to be all that God intends for them to be. And it, for me, it's been a, uh, a very good series to dive into because, you know, relationships are vital to who we are. And there's lots of relationships. There's our jobs, there's our workplaces, there's our friends, there's our family. Uh, those of you who are married, you have your spouses, your, 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 those of you who have kids, you have relationship as a parent with the child and vice versa. Many of you still have parents that, are, uh, that you have relationship with. And uh, we, have, we have many people in our lives that God's called us to relate to and, and that relationship is meant to be, as God's design is, that relationships are meant to be a blessing, meant to be life-giving, meant to be healthy and life-transforming. And uh, when we go back to the Bible, the very beginning, we see both God's design and intention, but also what went wrong from the beginning. Uh, And that was the problem of sin. The reason why relationships are broken is not because a relationship by itself is bad, but it's, it's made up of imperfect people. And sin is what came into the world because of the man's decision to choose his own way instead of God's way. Uh, In Genesis 2, Chapter one and two, God God reveals His plan in creation. God would form things and and say it is good. He'd form the heavens and the earth. He would fill the earth, and and He would say, with everything He made, He would say it is good. And then in Genesis two, He comes to man and He makes man, places him in the garden, and gives him a job, gives him a responsibility. But then He says about man, He says it is not good. This is chapter two, verse eighteen. It is not good that man should be alone. It's the first time that God said something was not good. And uh, eight times, in fact, in Genesis 1 and 2, God says that statement. It is good. It is good. In fact, the very last one, it is very good. Uh, and yet, then God comes to man and he says, there's something that wasn't good yet. And, and it, let me just say this. If, if a good God says something is not good, it means he's not done. So if something's not good yet, God's not done yet. That's what you got to know about God. When we invite him into our life, when we allow God to be God in our life and, uh, and make our lives and our relationships all that God intends them to be, God, God begins to work in the areas that may not be good to bring about his goodwill and, and purpose. So Genesis from the beginning is very honest. It's honest about the relationships that are affected by the, the consequence of man's decision to choose his own way, and that was sin. God brought the first marriage together, created Eve, and brought, him, brought her to, to Adam, and, and God started a family. That was the very beginning of the design for creation, and yet, when Adam chose sin, and, and sin entered, and death through sin came to the world, we see relationship after relationship began to experience brokenness. In fact, their very first sons, the next generation to inhabit planet Earth, uh, was, was a sibling rivalry. Uh, anybody imagine that? You've got brothers and sisters. How many of you you know, don't raise your hand. Uh, you've had conflict with your brothers and sisters. Uh, and, and there's been issues. There's been relational challenges and uh, there's competition. In fact, the Bible in the very beginning in the book of Genesis describes uh, broken marriages, infidelity. It describes uh, lies that are told. It, it describes jealousy. 
It describes relationships between siblings that are, that are festering jealousy because a parent favored one child over another. I was an only child, so I was the favorite all the time anyway. It didn't matter. It's a joke, but anyway, I was the best and the worst. Okay. But, but, but here's the thing, that, that in the very beginning, we see the result of broken relationships. And God's design from the very beginning is to bring redemption, restoration, and to bring about his good purpose and will for our lives. So uh, when we look at this, God still says it's not good that man should be alone. God doesn't want us isolated. He doesn't want us broken in our relationships. He, want our, he wants our relationships healthy and whole to be all that he intends them to be. Today's message title is, We Need to Talk. We need to talk. Um, if somebody says to you, we need to talk, it's almost never good. Somebody says, we need to talk. It's, whenever I hear that, I, I, I kind of, you know, just shrink back just a little bit. It's like, oh boy, brace yourself. I don't know what's coming next. Uh, we need to talk. Uh, it, it's never, we need to talk. Um, we're going to Disney World. It's never, we need to talk, you know, here's your brand new car. It's, it's ever those conversations. Like, we're going to have hard conversations on the other end of we need to talk. But, but conversation is actually, in fact, communication is the heartbeat of every relationship. And so if our relationships are going to be healthy, we have to have healthy communication. In fact, I believe it's one of the most vital, so vital, that this is why the Bible says in Proverbs 18, verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life in your relationships, death and life in your marriages, death and life in your relationship with your spouse, your kids, your family, your, even your workplace, your friends, your coworkers, those that you're around on a daily basis, your relationships are formed, built up or torn down on the basis of what's spoken. I know people that have lived 20, 30, 40 years still affected by the words spoken to them when they were young. I know people who've had teachers tell them you'll never amount to anything. They have carried those words with them year after year after year until they stop believing it as a lie and believe instead the truth of God's word. There's many of us that have carried words that brought death, but life and death are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruit. So I've got four points related to the importance of relationship and communication. The first one is this. Everyone needs healthy relationships. If we keep this on the screen for a moment, it's a longer point. Uh, everyone needs healthy relationships. I don't think any of us would disagree with that. If we're honest, maybe most of our or some of our relationships are not quite what they should be. All of us have areas we want to have become better, have things change, have things grow. But healthy relationships also need healthy communication. So, so I, I, I really targeted marriage last week, and I'd encourage you if you missed that, whether you're married or single, go back and listen to that message because you're going to need that preparing for marriage, and you're going to need that in the midst of marriage. And I spent a lot of time dealing with communication because I think communication is one of the biggest challenges. It's one that as a pastor, uh, in 18 years of ministry, a lot of what I've done has been pastoral counseling as not only do I teach the Word of God in a church setting in this environment like we're doing right now, but also help people apply the word to their everyday life and their relationships. And it's just, the Bible has a lot to say about our words. It has a lot to say about our marriages. It has a lot to say about our relationships. And when, when we have unhealthy communication, we will have unhealthy relationships. It's just the truth. Now, how many know that communication isn't just words? When I got married, 
now almost 16 years. We'll celebrate that in June. Um, I learned that my wife, Jenna, who was up here a second ago, can say a whole lot without even saying a single word. Like, most of y'all, you know, some of you know her and have known her growing up in Mason City and known her for a while, but but if you if you don't know somebody that well, you may not pick up on certain expressions or certain looks. But I, we've been married a long time. We've raised our family together. We've served together in ministry, and we have an awesome, I'm so thankful for what God's given us in our marriage. And I've learned that my wife can communicate with just a look. And she can actually say more with a look than sometimes all the words that I need to hear. And, and so, so, so you can communicate with your facial expressions. Some of you are communicating with your facial expression right now. Your body language communicates. Your distance communicates. Your closeness communicates. And so there's a lot of ways in our relationships we communicate what matters. Our emotions communicate, good or bad. Our reactions communicate. When we blow up in response to something, we're communicating, if you talk to me about this, I'm not ready for it, so don't talk to me about it, because I'm going to react. We're communicating. It's also true that for communication to be good, we need good listening. The basis of any good or healthy communication is actually good listening. Uh, have you ever noticed two people that are they're really good at talking, but they're not so good at listening? And they get together and they start talking and you can tell. I, I've actually, it's a phenomenon I've, I've loved to watch uh, because you can see almost two people talking past each other because they're not really listening. They're thinking while the other person's talking of what they're going to say next. They use pauses in communication as an opportunity to plan the next thing they're going to say. That's none of you. That's people at first service. And so here's what the Bible says about listening. James chapter 1, verse 19. So important, it ended up in God's word. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person, every one of us, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He says, be quick to hear, be quick to listen. Why? Because for you to have a healthy relationship, you've got to make a connection. And as much as we think connections are made through talking about us, they're actually better made through listening to the other person. When was the last time you took time to listen to your spouse? To listen to your kids? To listen to what others are dealing with, what they're walking through, what they're rejoicing in, what they're struggling with? When we listen, when we take time to listen, we make a connection and it prepares us to understand the other person. We're slow to speak. Slow to anger. Why do we need to be slow to anger? Because the next verse tells us, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. A lot of anger, my experience has been that people become angry. There's lots of reasons for anger. There's actually positive anger. The Bible actually says you can be angry and not sin. There's things we should be mad about. There's some things, you know, when people mistreat kids, I get upset about it. I... I, I Somebody messes with my wife. Guess what? I'm going to get upset about it. I didn't say that first service, but that's free for you. Because there's some things you should 
It's okay to get angry about things that are wrong. But you can actually be angry and sin. And that's what the Bible warns us about. And it says the wrath of man or the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So if my relationship is going to be Christ-centered and healthy and life-giving, then I can't live based on reaction. And I think most of why we get angry is when we feel out of control. We feel like we're not being heard. We feel like we're not able to change the situation. We feel powerless and the result is anger. Communication is important. George Bernard Shaw, the playwright, said, the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it took place. Lots of people go, oh yeah, I've got great, great communication with my spouse. Well, ask your spouse. I, I know the temptation in this, this series is to jab somebody. If you're jabbing somebody right now, don't do that. If you're texting somebody, you know, I wish you had heard this sermon. Uh, I mentioned that last week, you know, don't tell your spouse, you, sh- you need to hear this message right now because God always starts with us. And I said that and five seconds later, one of my staff members texts their spouse. I won't tell you that it was Pastor Jacob and Shelby, but, <laughs> but, but here's, here's what we need to recognize. The communication is vital. It's important. Number two is that everyone not only needs healthy relationships, but everyone needs growth. I I talked about this in one of the two services last week. I'm not sure if it was this one, but um, we have in our world this idea that for your relationship to be good or healthy or strong, you need to be compatible. And so we've, we've, I think divorce attorneys have made up this idea of incompatibility. But here's, here's the reality. Everybody's incompatible with everybody. Everybody's different. Everybody's got different needs. Everybody's got different priorities. Everybody's got different strengths, different weaknesses. Everybody's different. Even those that are very similar are different. And so I think the issue isn't so much an incompatibility issue. It's often an immaturity issue. Well, I've been married for 30 years. I celebrate every time somebody's been married 20, 30, 40 years. I love that. But you know what? It's actually possible to be married for 20 years and actually be married more likely for one year repeated 20 times. In other words, you've still treated each other the same way you did the first year. Your communication hasn't grown. You haven't developed an intimacy. You haven't developed an emotional strength. You haven't, de- you haven't developed in growth, in conflict, in communication, and how you relate to each other when you disagree. Every relationship requires growth. And growth needs honest conversations. What's an honest conversation? Well, my experience has been if you're, if you don't have trust in a relationship, it's hard to be you. It's hard to be real. You're, if if you can't share something in honesty without getting slapped on the hand, then it's hard for you to open up. And, and that's why in a lot of religious environments, people are afraid to be real. People wear all kinds of spiritual religious masks. How are you doing? I'm doing great, even though the last week was hell. And, and we put... All the, in fact, we, we, we're good at that when we're dating. We're, we put our best foot forward, and that's fine. But, but after a while, we have to be ourselves. 
And when we develop trust in a relationship, we can begin to open up. And and part of having healthy communication or, or growth in our relationships is being willing to have, I'll say, tough conversations. What do you do when you disagree? You know, some people are more passive, and so they go, well, I just want to keep the peace in my home. So I avoid having the hard conversations. And, and we do that outside of our house. We have coworkers who are toxic. We have relationships in our friend groups that are toxic. And we go, well, rather than have the hard conversation and confront what's difficult, I'm going to just avoid it to keep the peace. That's not a healthy relationship. And so when we're willing to have an honest conversation, it creates an opportunity for that relationship to grow. But what if you're a person who likes to have conflict? There's a couple of you in the room. I know that's true. You, you, you relish the fight because it's your chance to win. My wife and I are two strong personalities. And I know it's hard to imagine the two of us getting into an argument. It usually happened after a church service in the parking lot. But no, I'm kidding. Or on the way to church, no. So, so but, but here's, here's what's true. We have two very strong personalities but we set some ground rules because we wanted Jesus at the center of our relationship. And so that means when we have conflict or disagreement, we're not going to fight with each other. We're going to fight for each other. I'm not going to fight with her to win, to be right. Have we always done that perfectly? Absolutely not. But we said early on that there's going to be some things we're not going to do. There's going to be some rules of engagement. Maybe you need some rules of engagement right now in your relationship. And can I just tell you, you don't need those when you're getting along. You need those when you disagree. And, and you know, for us, it was things like we were told by some much wiser people than us, when you get married, don't use words like always and never. You know what I'm talking about. You never fill in the blank. You always and, and when we do that, we're actually crossing lines. We're using arguments in our words to bring ammunition to win a conflict rather than fight for. We decided in our marriage that we wouldn't pull out the D word whenever we got into a fight. Every time we're fighting, up, oh, I'm on my way out. And so we've had rules of engagement. Because we're fighting for each other, not with each other. And we want God to be honored in our relationship, and we want Jesus to be at the center. You know, I, I, I thought before that having a hard conversation with somebody meant being unloving. But you know, it's actually unloving to avoid tough conversations. If you've got difficult situations in your, in your workplace or in your environment that you're at, bosses, coworkers, employees, whatever it is, and you're avoiding those conversations. You got a friend, there's something unhealthy, and it may feel loving to say, well, I'm going to avoid speaking the truth to that situation. But loving means I'm going to speak the truth in love because I care about you. And so avoiding is actually the most unloving thing I can do because avoiding means they don't know where they stand. 
I've had to tell people no in situations. They go, that's unloving to say no. I'm like, that's the most loving thing I could do. I could either avoid you for the next three weeks, ghost your text messages, ignore your emails, avoid you in the hallways. None of you ever do that to people, right? Or I could be loving and be direct. Kind, but direct. I'm getting super practical because if our relationships are ever going to be healthy, we have to be willing to have some honest conversations. We also have to be willing to receive honest conversations. We have to be willing to allow God first and then others to speak truth into our life in a way that sometimes confronts, challenges, stretches us, grows us. So, so, in the book of Exodus, this is a great story. God comes down on the mountain, Mount Sinai, brings his 10 commandments, tells Moses, Moses goes up on the mountain, meets with God. Moses spends 40 days in the presence of Almighty God. Israel at the foot of the mountain, the whole camp, all the people are there with Moses' brother, the high priest Aaron. And, and they're at the foot of the mountain, and on the mountain, it's a visible experience of God. They can see the presence of God. God comes down on the mountain. There's fire. There's smoke. It's terrifying, to be honest, but it's good. And they see the presence of God, and they're, they're blown away by who God is. God has clearly revealed himself to them, and the people are down there. But after 40 days, Moses doesn't come back down when they expect. They're wondering. They're waiting. They're starting to grumble and complain. And Moses finally comes down from the mountain and realizes that the people decided to take things into their own hands. Rather than wait for God and rather than wait for Moses, they took their jewelry, their earrings, their bracelets, their necklaces, all of their stuff, and they took all the gold and they gave it to Aaron and they said, hey, Aaron, we're tired of waiting for God. We're tired of waiting for Moses. We don't even know what's happened to Moses. Make us a golden calf. Make us a God. So Aaron, who's the high priest of the living God, takes the gold, the jewelry, puts it in the furnace. He brings it out into, as it's melted down and he shapes and he crafts a golden calf. And the people have a feast. And they throw a feast to not just any God, little g, but they ascribe to this golden calf that they just formed, that they just made, that Aaron shaped, and they say, we're having a feast to Yahweh the Lord. They were willing to exchange the God on the mountain for a God that they could control, that they could shape after their own interests and their own pleasures and their own pursuits. Moses comes down and goes, what in the world happened? He comes to Aaron first. He says, Aaron, you were in charge. I left you for 40 days. What did you do? And this is in the Bible, folks. You can, you can look at this. If you can find the reference, it'd be awesome. Uh, I, but here's, here's, here's what happens. Moses comes to Aaron and confronts him with an honest conversation. And Aaron's response is this. Well, the people you left me in charge of, they came to me and they gave me their gold. I put it in the furnace and out comes a calf. I don't know how it happened. To me, that's the definition of avoiding. It's, it's, see, it's right there. Thank you. It's avoiding responsibility. 
We're experts at that. I've never seen a marriage become all that it can be when people avoid responsibility. I've never seen relationships be all that they're called to be. I've never seen churches be all that they're called to be when God's people avoid responsibility. I've never seen it happen when we are like Aaron and say, I don't know. I just showed up. I don't know how it became a mess. And he doesn't own his part of the equation. He's not willing to hear the hard conversation. In fact, the reason why people deflect is to dodge. It's it's somebody else's issue. It was the way I was raised. It was the neighborhood I grew up in. It was this, it was that. And we deflect and we, we... We're having a problem today with the person in our life today, and we're looking for every other reason why it's a mess. Okay, I'm going to move to the next point. It's a lot better. Everyone needs growth. The Bible actually gives us a few keys before we go to the next one. A few keys to help us have healthy communication. Proverbs is actually, if you want to grow in your relationships, read the book of Proverbs. I'm telling you, there's a whole lot there that will shape and, and define the way you approach and relate to people. So uh, Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Has your spouse ever said something to you and you've got ammunition to fight back? Has somebody ever said something critical to you or negative to you or tough And rather than respond with a soft answer, you respond with a whammo. Never done that, me either. Not once. Actually, I have to repent. I just, okay. Several times. Um, Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like the releasing of water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. What is it saying? There's some things you can't unsay. It's like, have you ever tried? I know you haven't. I mean, maybe you have, but have you ever tried to put toothpaste back in the tube once it's squeezed? Try it today. Your words are the same way. Words come out that we'd rather take back. Words that destroy, words that tear down, words that don't build or edify the other person. Matthew 18 tells us what to do when we have a disagreement or a conflict, and it uses it in the context of, of believers of the church. Here's what it says, Matthew 18, 15. Here, here's, the, here's the bad news. At some point, you're going to have a disagreement with somebody else. Shocker. At some point... Somebody's going to do something that's hurtful, say something that was mean, do something that's unkind. How are you going to respond? Well, Jesus gave us some instructions that I think are countercultural. Here's what he says. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Well, I thought if somebody hurt me, I was supposed to post about it. I was supposed to text about it. I was, I, I'm learning from my niece. People don't go on Facebook. They're younger than me. They go on, Inst- on Snapchat. So I got to work on that. 
but you can Snapchat your offense too. Have you heard? I sound like an old guy. Okay. But, but, but here's, here's what we have to catch. When somebody's done something wrong to us, the person that we need to go to is not everybody else. We need to go to, we need to have that honest conversation with the person that has hurt us. I, I didn't expect any amens for that point. But, but here's what happens. Let's just make it personal. Let's just say, let's say, I'm going to use Nick because I use my wife already too much of service. Let's say Nick and I get in an argument. And Nick does something that I think is hurtful and rude. And I mean, that's never possible because Nick's like the nicest guy in our church. But let's say Nick does something and I, man, I'm heated about it. I'm mad. And I'm going to go tell Paul over here. Paul, can you believe what Nick just said? Can you believe what, how he treated me? And, what, and I go on Facebook and I'm like, listen, world. Do you know why we post stuff? Because we're not wanting reconciliation. We're wanting affirmation from others. And that doesn't fix relationships. It doesn't help anybody if I complain about my spouse on social media. I'm helping somebody. If I complain to others, because you know what I've done? I've transferred the burden of that relationship to somebody else that doesn't have the grace to carry it. And now Paul's mad at Nick. And he's like, man, yeah, Nick is kind of rude. The next day comes and Nick comes to me and says, man, I... I'm sorry, I had a bad day. Somebody took my, somebody didn't turn the baptismal hot enough and it was freezing cold. And I took it out on you and I, and, and now I'm like, you know what? You're right, you're good. I accept your apology and I'm over it. Do you know who may not be over it? Paul. Because now I've transferred the weight. Are you seeing what I'm saying? It's ridiculous, but this stuff happens every single day. Jesus says, you got a problem with somebody? Go to them. If they won't hear you, when it's appropriate, he goes on. He says, bring somebody else. Because sometimes it helps to have a third party to speak into that situation. The goal, though, is not to win. It is not to be right. It's to be reconciled. Sometimes that's not possible because the other person's not willing. But here's what's true. Whatever I'm responsible for, I'm going to take ownership in and say, if somebody did me wrong, I'm going to go to them. I'm going to pray for them. Okay, number three, everyone needs encouragement. Everybody. I don't care how tough we seem. I don't care how independent we are. Every one of us needs encouragement. And I believe as a child of God, as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus, we should be the most encouraging people on planet Earth. The world's way of operating is we're going to celebrate your rise and we're going to celebrate even more when you fall. That's not the church. That's not God's people. We should encourage one another. Church is called to encourage each other. In our marriages, we should be the most, my biggest cheerleader is sitting on the front row. We should encourage one another. We should celebrate each other. I know we get weird in church. Can I just be real? We get weird sometimes. Let's say I'm up playing guitar, which would be a miracle. And I do a really good job. Somebody comes up to me and says, man, 
the way you played that chord. I just felt God, it was awesome. And I'm like, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. Because I can't accept compliments or I'll be proud. We get weird. Can I just tell you, it wasn't that good. If Jesus did it, it'd be a lot better. (laughs) What if we said thank you? What if we celebrated each other? What if in the church we weren't around trying to think, how do I keep other people humble? I don't know why this is in the church world. It's a religious spirit. It just is. It's from the pit of hell. But we we literally feel like, there's some of us that feel like that's our calling. When somebody's got a fire, I'm the fire extinguisher. When somebody's celebrating, I'm going to help bring them down a notch. No, that's not the church. That's not what God's called us to be. I love the story in the Bible of King David. Before he became a king, he's pursued by the previous king named Saul. Saul gets jealous of David. Saul started out good. God gave him a calling and a purpose and anointing. And, but Saul decided to go against God's word and God's plan. And, and he was, became a backslidden king. And God comes, to Sam, God comes to Saul and says, I'm going to have to give your kingdom to somebody else. And God chooses David. The problem is Saul's got a son named Jonathan, who according to the tradition of that time, would have been the next king because the son of a king becomes the next king. And so naturally speaking, Jonathan should be the next in line for the throne. But he becomes friends with David. He becomes such good friends with David that he recognizes God has chosen David to be the next king. And unlike his father who lived jealous and live motivated by insecurity and insecure people, people who allow insecurity to drive a wedge between them and others have a hard time with healthy relationships. But Jonathan does something so important. One day Saul is literally out to get David. He's gathered his troops and he's on the way trying to kill David and David has to hide in caves and mountains and in the forest. And he's on the run. He's a fugitive and He's called by God. God has a promise over David's life that he'll be the next king. But Saul is adamant to put him to death and prevent that from ever happening. What is Jonathan going to do? Well, if Jonathan's like most people, Jonathan would be thinking, it's actually to my benefit that my dad takes out David. Because then I can be king. Then I can be successful. Then I can move forward. But you know what Saul, what David, excuse me, what Jonathan does? Jonathan's a lifter. I want you to see this. First Samuel 23, 15. We're almost done. One day near Horesh, David received news that Saul was on the way to Ziph to search for him and to kill him. And Jonathan went to find David. And here's what Jonathan does. Jonathan encouraged David to stay strong in his faith in God. That's what encouragement does. Encouragement literally infuses courage, infuses strength into that person. Jonathan, who should have been the next king, naturally speaking, watch what he says to David. Don't be afraid. My father will never find you. You are going to be the king of Israel. What an amazing encourager that rather than think about himself in that relationship, 
Jonathan didn't think, man, this is what I'm owed and this is what's my right and this is what belongs to me. Jonathan could only think about how do I make my friend the next king? That's what an encourager does. An encourager isn't thinking only about themselves. An encourager says, what is God purposed over your life and how do I get you there? How do I speak to that? Because we all need somebody like a Jonathan in our corner that comes along because David's having a rough day. David's probably struggling. He's on the run. And Jonathan, who's the only person who has a right to say, David, I'm going to be the king. Why don't you work for me? But Jonathan instead says, David, I see in your life you're going to be the king. I see God's chosen you, and I'm going to celebrate your prayer being answered. I'm going to celebrate your promise being fulfilled. I'm going to fight for you. In fact, that's the very next thing he says. I will be with you. I'm going to stand beside you. What if the church was a people who said, I'm going to speak to the purpose of God and somebody else. I'm going to celebrate when their prayers are answered more than my own. I'm going to celebrate when their promise is fulfilled, even before mine. And I'm going to lift them when they're down and I'm going to stand beside them when they're on the run. Jonathan was a real friend. Jonathan laid down his rights to see his friend move forward. I like how the NIV says it. Jonathan came to David, helped him find his strength in God. What if you did that for your spouse? What would that do to your marriage if rather than only seeing and speaking to what's not there, what's not happening, what isn't right, what if you began to encourage God's purpose in them? What if you began to call and, church, that's prophetic. What if you began to prophesy to the purpose of God in their life? What if everything else, everybody else can see the mess, but you can see the gold in the midst of the mess? You can begin to encourage. and You can begin to lift some time goes by for Aaron, and there's a battle. Moses is on the mountain, and he sends Joshua the younger to fight the battle with the troops. And Aaron and another man named Hur are watching as Moses lifts his hands and prays for the battle in the valley below. And they're fighting an enemy called the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a people that God himself says, I'm going to go to war with them generation after generation. Why? Because what God didn't like about the Amalekites and the way they operated is they only attacked the vulnerable and the young. They only attacked those who were weakened, those who, were, who could not fight back. I don't think it's an accident that the enemy's targeting a generation that can't have a voice yet, that can't fight back yet. That's why some of the worst things that happen to us happen when we're young. Because the enemy knows the plan of God and he's going to do everything he can to stop it. The enemy, the Amalekites are engaged in battle and Moses lifts his hands and, and as he lifts his hands to pray, they notice, they look down at the valley, they notice that Joshua begins to advance and his troops begin to win. But Moses, even though he's a prayer warrior, even though he's a fighter, his arms become weak. And as he becomes weakened, his arms lower and the enemy begins to advance. That tells us, church, that the greatest weapon we have in our arsenal is a weapon of prayer. 
When we stop praying, when we become discouraged in praying, the enemy advances. When the church prays, church, right now there's a revival in our nation in college campuses going after Jesus. That's the answer to the enemy's assault on our generation. And it's just the beginning. Moses had his hands lifted. And as he did, the enemy began to lose. But as he became weary and discouraged, so Aaron and Hur, you would think in the story, the main point is, is, is Joshua on the battlefield or Moses on the mountain. It's actually what happens next. Aaron gathers this other man and says, hey, we got to help him. And they come alongside Moses. They come alongside the leader of Israel and they begin to lift his arms up. And they begin to keep them lifted and they use their strength to support the strength of another and the battle is won and God gives them victory but it happened not because of Joshua's skill on the field or Moses' prayers but it happens when somebody came alongside and encouraged and lifted because it made the other two things possible. We need some errands in the room. We need some hers in the room that say, I'm gonna support, I'm gonna lift, I'm gonna come alongside that person and make sure that they get through this battle. I'm going to make sure they make it through this season. Leaders lift. Disciples lift. Followers of Jesus lift. The fourth and final point, Jason team, if you want to come down. Everyone needs encouragement. Number four, everyone needs forgiveness. Everyone needs forgiveness every day. Ernest Hemingway great author, wrote a story, a short story. Based in Spain, it was about a father and a son. And the father started having relationship difficulties with his teenage son. I know that's shocking to imagine having a problem with a teenager, but they're not getting along. And it gets so bad and so sharp that finally the teenage son whose name, he had a common Spanish name at the time, his name was Paco, and Paco's so done with listening to his father and following the rules and doing things away, he says, I'm out of here, and Paco leaves. And they become separated, and his father loves him, so he pursues him, but he can't find him. And the father decides in the story, decides, I need to make an effort to reach my son, he puts out a newspaper ad. And in the newspaper ad, it just says this. Paco, this is your father. Meet me by the newspaper stand downtown at noon. All is forgiven. That was the message. He shows up the next day at that time that he had posted and printed and advertised. And rather than just see his son... In the story, he finds 800 other Pacos who all read that same message from a father they had been estranged with. Do you know what the message is? Everyone needs forgiveness. Every day. All is forgiven. The Bible actually tells us who God is. The Bible is ultimately not just about us, it's ultimately about Jesus. It's about God's love letter from him to us to say, I know we've been distant. I know we've been separated. 
I know you've gone your own way, but this is how I feel about you. I love you so much that I'm going to give my best for you. Do you know our relationships are often a result of how we view God? Especially if you've been raised in a religious environment. If you feel like God's distant, you become distant to others. If you feel like God's judgmental and you become judgmental. Do you know if you realize that God blesses, you become a person that blesses too? If you know that God loves you, you become a person that more easily loves others. And if you know that you've been forgiven because of Jesus, all is forgiven. Your past, your past washed away. Given a future and a hope. If you really believe that about your relationship with God through Jesus, it'll change the way you relate to other people. Because you're going to have to forgive some people at some point. And I found the key to some of our greatest healing is on the other side of our forgiveness. The key to our greatest transformation, our greatest breakthrough, our greatest answers is often on the other side of our willingness to lay down our right to be offended. Forgiveness does not mean that what they did is okay. Forgiveness never justifies the, the sin. It only justifies the one, the object, the offender. When we're willing to forgive like God does, God forgives us, not by saying our sin was okay, but by saying, I love you so much, Jesus took the price of our sin. He bore it on the cross. He died in our place. He did it for you and for me. All is forgiven, come home. For us, our, our part of that equation is to show up and accept the Father's invitation. To meet him like that son met his father and many others came to receive the forgiveness of a father they had been estranged with. We come to the cross to receive the love of God. And I'm gonna ask you to do this. We're, we'll be done in just a moment. If you would stand to your feet. And I want us to pray. If you're in here and you've got some stuff you're carrying that you need to leave here at the cross, at the foot of Jesus. We trust this message encourages you in faith and in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about River City Church, find us on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co.